God's love is not unconditional. God's love is not unconditional. We're just going to jump right in it today. (laughs) It's a controversial statement designed to grab your attention. God's love is not unconditional. We'll say it's different and better than that. Now, when we say, let's be clear, when we say God's love is not conditional, we are not saying that God's love is necessarily conditional. See, conditional love is bad. It would be bad for God to manipulate us and make us jump through a series of hoops in order for him to love us. When we say God's love is not, condition, is not unconditional, we're not saying that God's love is impatient. No, it's quite the opposite. God is more patient than we know. We are not saying that God's love is not a gift. It's a gift he chooses to give. And it's not conditioned upon our performance, whether or not he gives it. We are not saying, related to that, that we have to clean ourselves up before God loves us. When we say that God's love is not unconditional, what are we saying? Well, maybe something from our experience will help. If you're watching your child. If your child's playing with another group of kids, I don't know if it's a soccer match outside, it's recess at the playground, uh, you're going to view your child differently than from the other kids, at least probably. You notice every little thing that happens to your child because you love her, you want to protect her. So if your child, let's say her name's Sally, I don't know, if Sally gets bullied, you will want to intervene because you love Sally. You don't want to see her get hurt. At the same time, though, if little Sally, if you see her bullying others, making fun, pushing around others, then you will want, or at least should want, also to intervene, because you don't want to see your child become that. So you love your child. If Sally thrives, you're filled with joy. If, If Sally has a hard time, you're filled with sadness. When we say God's love is not unconditional. We're saying that God loves us enough to intervene. He loves us enough to intervene. That's a love better than just being tolerant. He gets involved. He mercifully acts. And again, friends, we have not earned that kind of love. It's free. It's a gift. But God's love for us involves action. It's not strictly unconditional. We think of the most famous verse in the entire Bible. Read it earlier, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So from that verse, we get a little bit of a sense of what God's love is. How God's love is free, how it's out of grace, but it's more than a love that's just tolerant. It's purposefully merciful. It acts. It's a love that cares about the wrong we've done. Cares enough to act on it. Cares enough to intervene. It's a love conditioned not upon our performance. Instead, friends, it's a love conditioned upon the performance of another, Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's a love that's better than unconditional. It's God's love. So the gospel message of John 3.16, believe it or not, friends, it was anticipated, it was predicted hundreds of years prior. So today, we'll see the nature of God's beautiful gospel love in Jesus Christ, a love that is free, a love that's pure, a love that's saving and transforming. So we like to try to sum up whatever passage of the Bible we're in through one big idea or main point, so that the main point of the passage is the main point of the sermon. So today, in chapters 49 to 55 of Isaiah, say the main point, you'll see some blank spots in your bulletin for it, Uh, It says, real and lasting peace with God. Real and lasting peace with God comes through faith in the servant, our substitute. Real and lasting peace with God comes with faith in the servant, our substitute. 
So we'll see in this chunk of chapters that God promises peace, that he achieves peace, and then he offers peace. And I think each one of those steps reflects the process of John 3.16. So that's how we're going to organize our time. So the first step of God promising peace reflects the beginning of John 3.16. For God so loved the world. It's the first point. So as we parachute in to chapter 49 of Isaiah, which if you're looking at the Bibles provided, you'll find it on page 609. As we parachute in to chapter 49 of Isaiah, just remember where we are in the book. That there was a shift that came in chapter 40. Isaiah is now writing to a future audience. He's writing to Judah. Remember, this is the southern kingdom of the once united Israel. He's writing to Judah, who is now defeated and carried off into exile by a foreign country called Babylon. So Isaiah opens in chapter 40 in that shift of the book and the shift of audience. He opens with words of comfort for these exiles, reminding them that God has not abandoned them. God has not forgotten them. God still loves them, that God's promises to restore them, for them to be their people, although it might not look like it, his promises still remain. They will not fail. God promises that he will bring them back to their land and they will remain his people. But as we parachute in to chapter 49 of Isaiah, there's a problem. It's a problem that remains unresolved, that hasn't been addressed that much so far. It's sort of like promising someone that they'll be a professional basketball player. You're going to be a professional basketball player, but then you look at the person and you see that they're five foot nothing. <laughs> they can't run a mile. They have next to none hand-eye coordination. So you see that promise, there is something missing with how that promise would be fulfilled. So as we parachute into Isaiah 49, there's something missing. God calls them to be, God calls them his people, God calls them his servants, he says they are holy. But throughout this book, we've seen time and time again that there's something missing. There's something that doesn't quite line up with what God calls them and who they really are. We've seen time and time again, these people lived messed up lives. Their heart's natural inclination was not to run toward God. It was to run away from him. And yet these are his people. So here's this unresolved tension. God promises to bring them back to their homeland, bring them back to Judah. But what would happen when they actually got there? What about their relationship with God when they got there? What about the sin that still separated them from God when they got there? They could have peace in the geopolitical sense, but what about peace with God? How would that happen? Well, that's we have Isaiah chapters 49 to 55. This is what remains unresolved, and this is when the merciful and acting love of God enters into their situation. Out of his love, God promises them to bring them peace. So here's this first stage. We're looking at chapters 49 to 52. So as you might be aware, we're going through a big, often intimidating book like Isaiah. We're going through it at a quicker clip, just so we can keep the big picture in mind, not lose the forest for the trees. And we see what God is up to in the grand sweep of it. So for the sake of time, we'll have to be strategic about what parts of, this, of these chapters we read. So I want to draw your attention first to Isaiah 49, verses 1 to 6. Just keep your eyes there. And we're just going to see highlights through God promising peace. And the first highlight of this section is that God's mission of love through his servant. We see God's mission of love through his servant. Now, as you're looking at these first chunk of verses in Isaiah 49, remember in the section of Isaiah we were in last week, God told them that he would set them free from exile through another foreign king. You may remember his name. He names him specifically Cyrus. 
Cyrus, king, not of Babylon, of Persia. God said, one day Persia is going to come and conquer Babylon, and the king will set you free. Physical deliverance. He talks about that throughout the previous section we were in. And now in chapter 49, these first six verses, God starts off by talking about his servant again. He's mentioned his servant before in chapter 42. This servant's identity will become clearer soon enough. But it's as if we just remember what's been going on, promising deliverance through Cyrus, this human king. So it's as if God starts off here in Isaiah 49 to remind them, you need a savior greater than Cyrus. You need a savior greater than a human political figure. Friends, do, do we need that message? This might seem obvious to us, but our fears, our anticipations, our passions, all of the hubbub around 2020 might show us that we look for a savior from Washington, D.C. before we look for a savior from heaven. So in the opening part of chapter 49, I want you to look there, see a couple details. You see how in verse 3, that God calls this servant Israel. That's the name he calls his servant. Verse 3 calls him Israel. And God says it's through his servant Israel will be glorified. He will be glorified. His servant Israel. But then we go down to verse 5. God says it's through this servant that he will bring back Israel to himself. Don't just try to put this all together. It might be confusing. So we have someone here who is separate from Israel, but is called Israel, and who works to bring back the people of Israel to God. Are you following? Kind of. What's the point? In calling this servant Israel and using that name, we get a clue into the way that this servant will bring back God's people to himself. The way he'll do that is by being all that God's people were meant to be. God's people had failed to live up to the name of Israel. But this servant wouldn't. He would live the life they should have lived, but didn't. And failed to do. This is the longing of the entire Old Testament. The Old Testament cries out on each page, we need someone better. Even like we saw in Isaiah, King Hezekiah, a good king, a good man, was still a sinner who needed a savior. The entire Old Testament longs for this servant. The entire Old Testament longs for Jesus. As one author puts it, all the people, events, institutions, rituals, even Israel itself, finds its truest meaning and fulfillment in Christ. So the people of Israel did not live up to their name, but this servant would live up to their name in their place as their substitute. In verse 4 of chapter 49, just look down again, verse 4 tells us that one way the servant lived up to what the people of God failed to do is that when he felt struggles, when he felt feelings of failure and frustrations and was actually abandoned by God, Jesus did not turn away from God, as God's people did. Jesus remained trusting in God. As the New Testament tells us, when Jesus looked at the agony of the cross and the difficulty of his mission, he went forward for the joy set before him, trusting God who judges justly. Jesus succeeded where God's people failed. But as we keep reading the opening part of chapter 49, just still there, we see God's mission of love through his servant goes beyond bringing back the people of Israel and Judah to himself. Look again at verse 6, chapter 49. You know, saving people only from Israel would be a plan too small. Through the servant... God will bring back people from all the ends of the earth. All the ends of the earth. Jesus himself said in John 8, I am the light of the world. 
Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So God's work of love through the servant to bring back sinners to himself. This work naturally calls for shouts of gratitude and joy. And so verse 13 of chapter 49. But then we see another highlight of this opening section. God promising peace. And that highlight is that people are reluctant to believe this. People are reluctant to believe this. Look at chapter 49, verse 14. It says there, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. You can get another example of this in chapter 50, the very opening part of it, chapter 50, verses 1 to 3. Just stay there. Keep your finger there for a moment. So remember, God's just given his people these great promises. He tells them that he'll bring them back to himself through a servant who will live the life they should have lived in their place. And instead of joy and gladness, they respond with gloom and self-pity. They look at their situation. They look at their problems. They mumble. Nah, the Lord's forgotten us. We are forsaken. We can be impossible to please. God's people here feel abandoned. They feel too demoralized to believe God's promise. And what does God do? He gives more grace. (laughs) Reminds them of his grace. So at the beginning of chapter 50, you can notice there, God uses the image of divorce charges. He says, pull out the files. Why did the marriage go sour? Was it really because of me or was it because of you? Is it really fair to blame me for your captivity in Babylon? He's asking them. Then he uses the image of creditors. Judah and Israel, they feel like useless property that, the God, that God sold off to his creditors. And God responds, really? Am I in anyone's debt? Do I owe anyone anything? What are they thinking? He's been there the whole time. Keeps going in verse 2 of chapter 50. He has reached out his hand constantly to help. And he's asking, why didn't you grab on? God was ready, willing to save them and to help them. And friends, he remains so today. Hand extended. And it won't be extended forever. Then we just ask, kind of bring it home to ourselves. Are you clinging to being resentful toward God? Have you ever been just on a campaign of fault finding with him? Now, if so, you might be surprised about how God responds to those who can't seem to think beyond their problems, who can't seem to stop blaming God for their situation. You might be surprised how God responds. Out of love, God tells those people to wake up. He does that in chapters 51 and 52. He says, it's not me who is sleeping. It's you. Could that be true of you today? If you think God is irrelevant to daily life, uninvolved, uninteresting, not compelling, just kind of bland, then it's not God who is asleep. Friend, I say it with respect. It's you. So we go to the beginning of chapter 52. Notice God calling them to wake up. Verses 1 to 7. We'll read that. He says, awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come unto you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck. O captive daughter of Zion, for thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what I have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing, their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. 
Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The people of Judah were asleep. They did not feel the magnitude of their guilt, as we saw at the beginning of chapter 50, but neither did they feel and were awake to the majesty of God's grace, as we see here in chapter 52. As God calls them to wake up, notice how, how he describes them. He says they are captive daughters of Zion. He says their sufferings are legitimate, they're real. They are in a real-life hard situation. But notice here, he does not allow them to remain in self-pity. He does not allow them to remain victims. He can lift them up out of that mire. He takes captives, friends, and he makes them beautiful. He takes the sinners who blamed him, and he makes them holy. He takes the unclean, and he makes them clean. How would he do this? We don't get the full answer yet, but in verse 3, notice verse 3 of chapter 52, God says that he will redeem them without money. Without money. So he says, I'm not going to do this because of anything you offer me. He says, I'm not even going to do this as a sort of a pay-as-you-go plan. You just pay as much as you can give me just so that you can retain some sort of a sense of your own achievement. No, if I'm going to do this, I have to do this, God says. God would bring them back to himself. God would rescue them from their oppressors. God would cleanse them from their sin. This is his work. So God responds to their self-pity, feeling sorry for themselves. God responds to their blame-shifting by pointing them back to the power of his free grace. Friends, are you awake to that today? That God is able and God desires to put on display the power of his grace in your life. This is the good news of verse 7 of chapter 52. If you know the story of the very first marathon... Uh, the guy who was nuts enough to run from the city of Marathon to Athens, you know, 26-something miles in 490 B.C. He carried the message, rejoice, we conquer. He had to get back there as quickly as possible so that his people would not surrender to the already defeated enemy. So Isaiah's message, verse 7, is similar. Our God reigns. He will win the victory. Don't give up. The good news is that God loves the world promises peace in spite of our sin and stupidity. <laughs> and we don't have to be defeated. God has promised peace. Now, this is good news. This is good news that God has promised peace. It's good news that God loves us even when we were sinners against him. But friends, how will God accomplish peace? How will God make it work? The end of chapter 52 on into chapter 53, reminds us again of God's mission to restore his people to himself through his servant. And now we see this servant, not just as a servant, we see him as the suffering servant. So to fill in our outline, if you're keeping track, we began with, for God so loved the world. Now we are on that he gave his only begotten son. This is how we might sum up the end of chapter 52 and all of chapter 53. So the time we have, friends, just, it just can't do justice to the, the magnificence of this chapter, Isaiah 53. If you know it, this is, this is the mountain peak of Isaiah. And we'll go through this servant song and notice each one of its stanzas. stanzas and as we're doing that, you won't be surprised as you're hearing it that the New Testament quotes this chapter over and over again. Just because Jesus and his followers understood that this refers to Jesus. This is talking about Jesus as we're reading this. This was written 
As something like the Dead Sea Scrolls confirm, this was written hundreds of years before Jesus walked on earth. And it reads like an eyewitness account of Jesus. Friend, particularly those who are not Christians, how do you account for that? When brothers and sisters in Christ, be strengthened that the gospel of Jesus we believe in is no myth. It happened in history in accordance to what God has promised before the foundation of the world as expressed here. So Isaiah 53, that he gave his only begotten son. We'll read it a little bit at a time, and along the way we'll try to understand what Isaiah is saying, uh, how he speaks of Christ's work, how he speaks of Jesus' work to achieve the peace that God had promised his people. So we'll start with the end of chapter 52, verses 13 to 15. Uh, Look down there. He says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. So here in these, this opening stanza of the servant song, the suffering servant, we see the servant is victorious and shocking. We see the servant is victorious and shocking. You might remember as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, that people expected the Messiah, the one who would usher in God's kingdom, they expected him to be a mighty warrior. But instead they got one who said here to be marred, disfigured, one who was beaten so badly that they started the question, not just, is this the Messiah, but is this person even human? How badly he was tortured. But the one who is disfigured says here also that he is the one who redeems. Verse 15 says he sprinkles many nations. This likely has the background of what we read about earlier, the Day of Atonement. When the Hebrew priests would uh, sprinkle blood, a sacrifice of the lamb on the mercy seat so that Israel would be at peace with a holy God. Sins would be cleansed. And so here in chapter 52 of Isaiah, we have this servant who is himself the priest who sprinkles the blood and who is himself the sacrifice whose blood is sprinkled. Let's go on. Chapter 53, first three verses. Just noticing what the servant does, his work to redeem. Verses 1 to 3. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Here we see the servant lived a life of rejection. The servant lived a life of rejection. Friends, we judge by appearances. Whether or not we admit it, that's what we do. And by appearances, Jesus was unimpressive. Now, if you were around during the time of Jesus, don't think that you, would have, you wouldn't have responded in the same way as everyone else responded back then. People witnessed Jesus' miracles firsthand and turned away. Even Jesus' own family at one point basically called him a lunatic. John the Baptist, the guy who talked about like his entire ministry was about how great Jesus is. Even John the Baptist at one point was uncertain about Jesus. So verse 2 of Isaiah 53 tells us why we instinctively reject Jesus. It's because we don't find him beautiful. One preacher puts it like this. He says, we don't feel endorsed by Jesus. He was so lowly and unimpressive that he makes our aspirations for power and reputation feel evil. His happy poverty makes, us, makes our wanting more and more feel foolish. 
His willingness to suffer for others' sake makes our craving for comforts feel selfish. And so to protect ourselves, we instinctively reject him. Let's just think, why? Why is where Jesus known? His name is known more of a curse word than the actual God. Live the life of rejection. Chapter 53, verses 4 to 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon, the chastised, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here we see about the servant, that the servant is a substitute. The servant is a substitute. Friends, this is why he came. Jesus puts it, he came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Again, friends, this is better than tolerant love. This is a love that mercifully acts, a love that knows what is right and wrong, can recognize wrong, and do something about it. And notice in these verses, verses 4 to 6, notice the pronouns here. He bore our griefs. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds, we are healed. Now, earlier in chapter 49... We said that Jesus lived the life that we should have lived, but didn't. Lived up to what the people of God were called to. And here, we now see that Jesus died the death that we deserved. That everything that happened to uh, to Jesus on the cross should have happened to us. Friends, because there was damage done. There was damage done in our relationship with God. And when damage is done, someone has to pay for it. If you don't believe me, just ask your insurance agent about that. Jesus was a man of sorrows, but he didn't deserve them. They were our sorrows. And you friends see the love of the substitute here. Instead of collapsing over our rejection of him, he carries our griefs. Instead of crushing us for our iniquities, he is crushed himself for us. If this does not land on you, it could be because you think of your sin too lightly. I'm not talking about sin in general. I think most of us can have an adequately big view of sin, a right view of sin. We can have a right and biblical view of sin, but friends, we just don't include ourselves in it. We can recognize well the depths of evil and sin against God, but fail to recognize it in ourselves. We keep a good track of the faults of other people, but have a selective memory about the faults of our own. There's a reason why, if you know the painting of Rembrandt, in his painting of the crucifixion of Jesus, there's a reason why Rembrandt painted himself into the picture. It's because he understood that it was his own sin, in part, that put Jesus on the cross. His own sin, not just sin in general. To quote from the hymn, It's an old hymn, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. I think it's the third stanza that goes like this. You who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here at the cross may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who it is that bears this awful load. This is the word, the Lord's anointed, the Son of Man, the Son of God. Maybe to put that in other terms, this is what had to happen if people weren't going to go to hell. There is no small sin because we have never offended a small God. You remember the God we talked about last week, Isaiah 40. 
Verse 6, Isaiah 53 says that we all, just a little side note, we all, that sounds pretty comprehensive to me. Uh, That includes good people, supposed good people, and bad ones. We all, like foolhardy sheep who go from self-remedy to self-righteous excuses, we all, for us, God has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Friend, believe that. Trust your guilt to him. Going to keep going, walking through this chapter. Isaiah 53, 7 to 9 says, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Here we learn the servant was innocent, but he volunteered. The servant was innocent, but he volunteered. There's no one who spoke up on his behalf. There's no fair trial given to him. And when he was put to death, he was buried with the rich, which says here was not something honorable. The rich were considered the wicked. He was not buried with the martyrs and the saints. But these verses also show us that Jesus chose this. John chapter 10 says he willingly laid down his life. No one takes it from him. He laid it down himself. He volunteered. And through all of this life, he volunteered. He was innocent. Completely. And so we ask, who else is like this? Who else can we say that of? Complete innocence. If it's him alone, then who else could serve as our substitute? Chapter 53, to close out the chapter, says, Yet it was the will of the Lord, verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Here, finally, closing out the chapter, we see the servant's work is God's design. The servant's work is God's design. What happened to Jesus? This servant is more than the plot of humans. It's the plan of God. Jesus was not embittered on the cross. He did not lash out against his tormentors. He did not blaspheme God on the cross. He knew that in his death, in what seemed like defeat, there would come victory. He knew that that victory would be won, that it was finished. Verse 11 says, Jesus is no longer suffering. He is risen, and God has accepted that sacrifice and is satisfied by it. Jesus knew that through his death, as these verses say, many would be counted righteous. And here, friends, is one of the miracles of the gospel, that many would be counted righteous. The gospel of Jesus Christ, one of its miracles is that God can take sinners and call them righteous. That God can declare guilty people to be innocent. This is the whole point of chapter 53. The whole point of the work of the servant. Each of us is guilty. Because we live in denial of this. It's not a popular thing to say, that each of us is guilty. But there's a reason why, for example, that we love to see figures in the public eye fall. Because we take assurance that they are phonies just like us. There is a reason why we have just a bent in our heart toward finger-pointing and blame-shifting. To say that all of our problems, we have a bent in our hearts to say that all of our problems are someone else's fault. We have a bent in our hearts to just passionately prove that we are right in every situation. Why? 
It's because we secretly know whether or not we admit it. We secretly know that we are guilty and we don't want to deal with it. And so each of us, our biggest problem, each of us has objective moral guilt before the God of the universe. Romans 3, 19 to 20. Every mouth will be stopped before him when we see him. No human innocent in his sight. If each of us is guilty, then none of us is at peace with God. And friends, peace with God is what Jesus brings by living the life we should have lived and by dying the death we deserved. So the work is done. Here's the deal. Jesus says, Jesus says to us that my only guilt will be yours. My only guilt will be yours, not mine. And your only righteousness will be mine, not yours. That's the deal. None other deal like it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We've come to the last part, that whoever believes in him. We've reached chapters 54 to 55. We'll go through it quicker, I promise. Uh, We're not going to read it all. Um, But it sums up our response to the peace that Jesus has won for us and the peace that God offers us. It's here we see that the gospel is not like the kind of news we see on TV or read on our social media. It's not the kind of news that you could just turn off the TV, go about your dinner. It's not the kind of news that you could just close your phone, stick it in your pocket, and go about your day. It's the kind of news that is built into it a call for respond, responding. It calls for a response, this peace with God. It's meant to reorient your heart and your entire life. So if you look at the very first word of chapter 54, you'll probably soon figure out why it's there. Given all of that Isaiah just talked about in 53, all that Jesus has just accomplished, the very first word in chapter 54, sing. Sing. We know the good news of Jesus has landed on us if we can sing over it. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. And just to nuance this again, we're not saying that Christians never feel grief or they never feel lament. But Jesus and Jesus' finished work for us should give us joy and make us sing. The joy that chapter 54 talks about is that we were once barren, unable to save ourselves, but God has done what we were unable to do through the work of his son. So this chapter 54 just recounts the blessings that the servant has secured for God's people. So as the Bible puts it later on, we were with no hope and without God in the world, but through the blood of Christ we have been brought near. Uh, So peace is achieved, blessings secured. This is chapter 54. And And this was all begun at the very beginning, not because we loved God, but because God loved us and sent his son to be a sacrifice for us, for our sins. So with all this in place, we can finally make it. Finish line, chapter 55, and just say two appeals. In light of peace being secure, blessing being secure, all achieved, all that Jesus has done, two appeals. You can get in on this, and you can live on this. You can get in on this, and you can live on this. Last part we're going to read. Chapter 55, 1 to 7. Last part we'll read. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for which is not bread and labor for which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. 
Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that you did not know shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon his name while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. You can get in on this. You can. Jesus looks at our guilt, our shame, our loss, our tears, our despair, and he says, you do not have to bear that one moment longer. So, God says, stop seeking the bread that won't satisfy. Stop seeking the self-salvations of overwork, of romance, of entertainment, of achievement. They will not satisfy. They will not save you. Our world has a buffet of options to attempt to fill our longings and to expiate our guilt. But none of it, none of those options will work. So God says, come to Jesus, the bread of life. You can be freed from your past. You can have God now and forever. Come to Jesus. Now, this might be patently obvious. I wasn't around back when Woodstock happened. But I've read the story about a singer who sang at Woodstock, Joan Baez, who performed the song, Oh, Happy Day. Uh, you might know the lyrics, Oh, Happy Day, Oh, Happy Day, when Jesus washed my sins away. And as she finished that song, her voice at one performance kind of trailed off, and she said, if only it were that easy. Perhaps, friend, that's how you respond this morning. If only it was that easy. If peace was God, if only it was that easy. Well, friend, if you think peace with God is easy, then you have not been reading Isaiah. Jesus did the most costly and difficult work ever done and ever to be done. He suffered the just hell of God's holy wrath against sinners rather than us bearing that ourselves. That was not easy. So despite everything you've ever done, you can get in on what he has accomplished. So come. What does that look like? Verses 6 and 7 of chapter 55 help us some. What does it look like to come to Jesus those verses tell us that it looks like more than making a decision for Christ. It looks like more than sprinkling a little Jesus on your Sunday morning or on your Facebook page. It looks like repentance and faith. Turning away from the sin Jesus died for and turning to Jesus in faith, casting yourself on his perfect life, his substitutionary death in your place, and following him as Lord of your life. This is more than being nice and harmless and church-going. It's more than that. It's reorienting your entire life purpose. Coming to Jesus is an overhaul to our lives. That's why he says, count the cost. He means to show off the power of his grace in our lives. So friends, what do you say? If you want to know more about what it means to come to Jesus in repentance and faith, that is why we are here. Come find me afterwards. Find someone who looks like they know what they're talking about afterwards. But friends, make no mistake, this will involve struggle, coming to Jesus. It involves the struggle of leaving behind the life he has saved you from. But friend, he is worth it. He is worth it. There is no other substitute, no other bread that will satisfy for all eternity. But Jesus and the good news that he lived, died, and rose in our place is not just good, for, good news for us the first time we hear it. It's good news for us our entire lives. So we say not only can you get in on this, but we can live on this. We might not think we can, 
But as chapter 55 closes, God reminds us that what he thinks is more important than what we think. Verses 8 and 9. God reminds us that the Christian life is not about us keeping the hope of the gospel alive. It's about the hope of the gospel keeping us alive. Verses 10 and 11, it's like rain coming down to earth. He reminds us in verse 13 that he is leading the ones he has saved to the world where everything is made new. God loved the sinful exiles in Judah He loved them enough to recognize the sin that separated them from him. And through the work of his servant, he can restore them to himself. They could get in on this. They could have peace with God. And that's the hope that could sustain them as God was bringing them home. So just to close, author Peter Kreeft sums up well what the finished work of Jesus, the promised servant of old, should produce in those who believe in him. So how should we live now? He says this. Now suppose both death and hell were utterly defeated. Suppose the fight was fixed. Suppose God took you on a crystal ball trip into your future and you saw with indubitable certainty that despite everything, despite your sin, despite your smallness, despite your stupidity, you could have free for the asking your whole crazy heart's desire, heaven, eternal joy. Would you not return fearless and singing? What can earth do to you if you are guaranteed heaven? To fear the worst earthly costs would be like a millionaire fearing the loss of a penny. Less than that, fearing a scratch on a penny. Praise God for his work through his servant, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, like you, there is no other. True life is found in you alone. And God, we live because of your grace, not because we've earned it, but because you chose to love. And you have achieved all that is necessary for us to be at peace with you. We owe our whole beings to you. So God, give us faith. God, give us a bigger view of you Make us humble in light of your grace, humble in light of the cross. Bring understanding here. And God, help us live in light of all this. For the glory of your name, through Jesus we pray, amen.